draw your attention to this sheet that uh, one of the sheets that was given to you tonight. It's the one that says the community of family on the top of it. And tonight for the first 15, I'm going to be talking about the family. I'm going to be talking about the community behind the family. And I'm pulling predominantly from a book called The Family. It's by Jack and Judy Balswick. They are Christian psychologists. And so we're going to be getting into a little bit of the psychology behind what makes family uh, intimacy possible. And the reason why we're going to look at that tonight is because we're going to couple that with Scripture and we're going to look at the benefit that really science can give us in terms of understanding why it's important that we come together in community and specifically the community of family as a church. One thing that we know is that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren, so that looks like you and me, the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We are considered the family of God. We get adopted into that when we come to faith in Jesus. And so that's why we talk about the family of God. That's why we say we are a church family. Um, and when I was doing student ministries a couple of summers ago, we spent the entire summer just looking at what, is it, what does it look like for the, the student ministries group to become a family. And it was really sweet. I remember this one camping trip that we went on, and everybody had a job. Either they were helping to prepare food, cutting up tomatoes and cleaning off the lettuce or whatever, or they were helping clean up the barbecue afterwards and leaving most of the dirty work for us, really, uh, to clean a couple weeks later. But um, nonetheless, they were learning about what it meant to come together in the context of community to be the family of God with one another. And so it was a sweet time where we got to see that develop. And, and I remember talking to the students at the end of the summer, asking them what that experience was like for them. And, and I remember a couple of girls specifically saying, yeah, I actually feel like we became a family this summer. And so it was really cool. It was just getting to see the fruit of laboring towards that together and getting to see it actually transpire in the ministry. Now, if you look at your sheet here, there's some blanks, and so I want you to follow along. John's going to have some things up on the screen, and I want to draw your attention first to this, this first blank, which is covenant commitment. So if you have a pen, fill that in. Covenant commitment. The next one, uh, number two, blank two, we're going to come back to A there, but number two is grace. And then number three is already filled out, and so is number four, but then we have empowerment and intimacy. So jumping back up to covenant commitment, there's something that marks covenant commitment, and it's this desire to love and be loved. We see covenant commitment happen in Scripture. We see it in Genesis uh, chapter, chapter 13 when God makes a covenant with Abraham. In chapter 15, that's when the animal sacrifice is, is uh, taken part, and, and actually God makes this covenant with Abraham. He says, hey, go get these animals. They cut them in half. And it says that this torch passes through. It's symbolic of God passing through. But you'll notice that Abraham doesn't pass through if you read chapter 15. It's this idea that there's this, uh, the establishment of a covenant between God and Abraham that God is, is going to uphold. In Hebrews 13, we see that there is an everlasting covenant that comes through the blood of Jesus. In the marriage ceremony, you have two people and they make their wedding vows to each other. And the idea of, of really marriage and wedding is that you're making a covenant commitment to the Lord. And we're all familiar with the idea of a wedding ceremony. The idea there is that that's not broken except by death or in some cases by infidelity. And so 
in this idea of what marriage is supposed to look like, it's, it's this covenant commitment, it's this bond that cannot be broken, it's this everlasting establishment that it takes place between a man and a woman before the Lord, and, and now they've entered into what's called marriage, and it's this picture of the relationship of Jesus and the church, right? And that's what we know from Ephesians chapter 6. And so that's covenant commitment. I want you to get that in your head. It looks like loving and being loved. Moving on to grace. Grace is marked with the desire to forgive and be forgiven. Psalm 51 is a really beautiful psalm. It's what David writes right after he, uh, sometime after he has been um, called out by Nathan the prophet for his sin with Bathsheba. And David's response in, in chapter 51 of Psalms is, um, God, would you have mercy on me according to your unfailing love? Blot out my transgressions, O Lord. And there's this idea there that God's unfailing love, and it does, but it has the ability to remove sin. And that's what David is really calling upon, is God's grace. There's this desire to be forgiven. He becomes aware of his sin, and as he becomes aware of that, he says, Oh my God, have mercy on me. Have grace on me. We also see it in Hebrews 9 where it says that the blood of Christ cleanses us. And what it goes on to say is really cool. It says to serve the living God, which gets right into empowerment. Because empowerment is marked by the desire to serve and be served. And really the idea here with an empowerment is that when we empower one another, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're showing the other people that we're in relationship with what it looks like for them to really step into their full potential or their, for, their, their full identity in Christ. And so that's empowerment. It's, it's this empowerment to, to serve and to be served by others. We see that in 1 Corinthians eleven three. This is probably one of those verses that um, actually carries a lot of controversy with it because it talks about the man being the covering for the woman. But let's not stop there because what it says then is that, that God is the covering for Christ, the head of Christ. And the reason I bring that verse up is because that verse actually gives us a picture of what it looks like to serve one another, to empower one another, to be fully who we are called to be. The fact that God is Christ's covering enables Christ, the Son, to do what he did on the cross and on the earth. It's the fact that God is his covering. When we men and women come together, the fact that, that men are the covering for the woman, that actually empowers the woman to fulfill her role as a servant and, and con- um, what's the word I'm looking for? Contrastly, something like that. We'll go with that tonight. Conversely, thank you. Conversely, the fact that the woman serves the man actually empowers the man to be uh, the leader and, and the head. And so we see these ideas at play that when we empower one another, we are able to achieve the role that God has truly called us to do, just as Christ is able to achieve the goal or the role that, that he was um, called to do. And all of this ends up leading to intimacy, which is marked by the desire to know and be known. I love John seventeen three. It says, Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life does not happen when we enter into heaven. It happens when we come into relationship with Jesus. It's, it's begin, it began when you entered into relationship with him. Eternal life is knowing Christ. Um, and then we have Philippians 3.10 and Paul in this, he expresses this desire to know the power of the resurrection, that he might join with Christ in the fellowship of his suffering um, and be conformed to his death. There's this intimacy here that occurs for Paul. And it's, again, it's, it's this desire to know and to be known. Now, here's the great news. God, in our relationship with him, he's doing a stellar job at all these things. 
He has made a covenant commitment to us. We see that in the covenant that he made with us through Jesus. He is constantly forgiving us. He's already forgiven us, we could even say, for all sins that we're going to even commit in the future. But he's certainly forgiven us of all sins in the past and the present as well. He empowers us. He continually is calling us into relationship with him and saying, I want you to step into the identity that you are in Christ. And I want to empower you to join with me in what I'm already doing. And because he knows us fully, and I want us to just think about that for a second. He knows us fully. He knows all of our insides and our outsides, our ways of thinking. Psalm 139, that's what, what David says. He says, before a word is on my lips, you know it, O Lord. God is intimately acquainted with us. He knows all of our thoughts. He knows every intention of our heart, good and bad. And yet he loves us. As you go ahead and look at the screen, because as, as these things function together properly, it's going to be the spiral one. Oh, you can just blow through those, John. These things will work together in such a manner that they spiral deeper and deeper and deeper. It's not just that these circle around once, that they cycle through once, and then you get to intimacy, and yay, that's the end. No, the intention of these things, what Jack and Judy point out in their book, is that there's an ever-deepening cycle of this. That as you go deeper into covenant commitment, that you go deeper into grace. As you go deeper into grace, you go deeper into empowerment. As you go deeper into empowerment, you go deeper into intimacy. As you go deeper into intimacy, you enter deeper into covenant commitment. And so the cycle continues. But if one of these things suffer, then they all suffer consequently. For example, if you, let's say that you're married, if you um, disappoint your spouse in some way and they are unwilling to forgive you, you probably are not going to be empowered to serve them in that moment. Consequently, if you're not empowered to serve them, there's not going to be very much intimacy, probably because you're going to be known in your bad and you're not going to feel love, and so now there's going to be an absence of covenant commitment. But you can really start with any of these four. We could even start with intimacy. If, there's not, if you don't feel known by your spouse, or maybe by your parents, or maybe by your child, it's going to be difficult to really enter into a covenant commitment where you say, I love you regardless, I'm going to choose to forgive you no matter what, and because I'm forgiving you, now you're going to be empowered to serve this family. So if you start with any of these things, and if any of these things is broken, it's going to be really difficult for you to enter into any kind of depth into, in, in these relationships. Now, how does this transfer over then? As we're, we're talking about community, we're talking about church, we're talking about how to take these things and integrate them into the small groups that we're starting up here at Influence. And that's what it looks like. It looks like taking the things that are on this sheet, and when you come together in community, you're deciding for yourselves that, hey, we're going to be a community, uh, uh, we're going to be a family. And we're going to choose that when people open up and they share, that they can do that because they understand there's this covenant commitment of love. That no matter what they're, they're bringing to the table, they know that they're going to be loved by us in response. They know that even if, if they offend us, that there is going to be an extension of grace. That grace is going to be abundant. We're going to continue to put them into places that they can serve this small group or this church by continuing to empower them to be fully who they are in Christ. And consequently, as people open up and they share the deepest parts of their heart in small groups and in community, then intimacy is going to occur. The greatest form of intimacy comes by being fully known and being fully loved, and that's what we have with the Lord. But the greatest form of rejection is to be known and to not feel loved. 
So if all of these things are functioning together, then deeper relationships, more intimate relationships are possible. Deeper love can happen. And again, these things work together in an ever-deepening fashion. And so church, I'm going to encourage us, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge us that especially those of us who are already signed up for a community group, that we would take this material and that we would just transfer this over into our dealings with our church. That as much as possible that we would see the integration of this, that we could be a church that's not afraid to enter into the deep places of one another's hearts, especially when we're doing that in the community of our small groups. And that we would continue to love each other, that we would continue to forgive each other, that we would continue to empower each other, that we would continue to know each other, that we would continue to love each other, and so on. And so would you just join me as we pray for that to happen? God, would you take us deeper into this understanding of what it means to be loved, to be forgiven, to be empowered, and to be known? And God, would you continue to deepen this cycle within us, within our hearts? Would you uh, give us experiences of this, Lord? We know that these things are true of you. We know that we are fully loved by you, fully known by you, fully forgiven by you, fully empowered by you. Would we also learn how to step into that, to step into that love, to step into that forgiveness, to step into that empowerment, to step into our service, and to step into uh, just allowing ourselves to be known by you and by others. God, open our hearts to you. And would you speak to us tonight? I think it's awesome already that you, you gave Whitney this word of intimacy for worship, and now here it is, we're talking about it again. God, I just see that your hand is on this. And so tonight I ask that there would be a deepening of intimacy with you, Jesus. Would you take us deeper into your love and into your grace? So speak to us now, Jesus. We are here. We're your disciples. We need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Nathan. How's everybody doing tonight? Good? All right. Well, it's good to see you, and uh, welcome. We're gonna, uh, we've are going to we got to really fly tonight and cover a lot of ground because uh, uh, we basically missed one week, but we're glad we did. Uh, Corey did a great job uh, being with us. Hey, I want to tell you about what we're doing next time, and don't be frightened when I show you a three-volume set uh, because I promise you, you will not read these three volumes in six weeks. All right, I've only been trying to read them for like my whole life. Um, but it's called The Spiritual Man by Watchman Nee. And it is, uh, by his own words and by probably the testimony of many, uh, his deepest and greatest work he ever did. It is an amazing, amazing study. So what we probably are going to do, I'm just trying to figure out how to map it out. I've been working on this for quite a while. Uh, we're going to try to cover as much as book one as we can. All right, and then we're going to try to determine if we need to do spiritual man verse uh, or volume one, two, and three. Okay, so that we cover it over a period of time. But it is uh, it really is an amazing book. We have uh, about forty five of these right now. They're they're not easy to get a hold of in this three volume set. So if you want to sign up for that, we are going to actually eat part of the cost on these. And so they're $20 for the three books, which is a great, great deal. Um, if you can find them cheaper, tell us. We will buy them. Okay? But uh, Spiritual Man, Watchman Nee, sign up. That one will start sometime, I think, after we get back from South Africa, if I remember right. Okay. Um, tonight, we're going to try to cover um, three things before we do uh, in our book. I want to just uh, – did everyone get a copy of the House of Prayer 
the mission agency thing? Did you get that? Okay, I need you to like help me. Yeah? All right, good. You're awake? You're alive? Okay, cool. Um, what we're going to do, and I'm not going to go into great detail. I did with our staff today, but I, I want to just kind of uh, uh, introduce us just a little bit to you. Hold on. Struggling tonight. Just a minute. Okay. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to cast a vision on our anniversary that we're going to start a house of prayer. Um, we're going to start small, kind of work our way up, but we're going to actually launch it as a mission agency. And you can see all the details there. We're going to give you more, but I wanted you to understand a little bit about it. If, if you have anything in your heart that says, I think I might like to know more about that, I'd like to be interested, then uh, there should be an area there at the bottom where you can just kind of put your name and you can turn that in to us uh, at the end of the night and let us know that, gee, I'd, I'd like to know more about that. I would be interested in being a part of that kingdom endeavor. All right, so are we ready? Got your discipleship book? Let's just uh, let's review for a minute. There's four goals of biblical discipleship. The first one is to establish the believer in the we got to do better than that. In the Word of God, all right? got to establish the believer in the what? Word of God. Number two, we got to establish the believer in fellowship with other believers. Number three, we have to establish the believer in what? The structure of the local church. And number four, we want to establish the believer in a ministry of the Word of God. So we want everyone in this room to feel like you have a ministry of the Word of God. Now, there's a lot of things that fall in the category of ministry. We, we, we call everything ministry that from parking cars to handing out bulletins to serving coffee to sweeping you know, the, the floor and all those kind of things. All of those are good. All of those are necessary. We need all of those things done. But what we want you to also have that's going to be critical is we want you to have a way that you can share the Word of God with somebody so that they can come to an understanding of what it means to really be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's why we're giving you this material. Much of this material, I understand, you probably have an awareness of. Maybe you have a lot of knowledge about it, but you haven't discipled someone. You haven't reproduced your life in the life of another person. Maybe you know, you know eight of the ten things in here, and you say, I'm pretty well aware of those, but there's two I don't. That's going to help you as well. But remember, I want you to, to disciple. I want you to take this material, find someone who doesn't have this experience, who doesn't know about this. Maybe someone you're trying to, to, uh, to, to minister to, and they, they need a foundation in the Word of God. So you take this, you meet with them, you get them a copy of the book, they work through that with you, and you just crank it out week by week, you're pouring into their life with the idea that they're going to do the same for somebody else sometime down the road. Got it? Let's try it again. Got it? All right, we need more coffee and more food. Uh, it's funny, I, was, I walked into the uh, training for the South Africa team, and everybody looked a little bit solemn, and, uh, and I thought, they all need food. Everybody's fasting and everybody's hungry. And then some joker who's on some media fast is over there eating, you know, and killing us all. Amen? John? Um, anyway, I'm not going to mention any names, but we're just going to say John. Um, let's go to page 34, if you will. We're going to uh, look at prayer and the will of God. Again, I'm going to hit these things really fast. Um, you should have done the lesson, so it shouldn't be uh, something new to you. 
Um, whenever we talk about prayer, I want you to keep this thought in mind. It's possible to move men, and I use that in the, in the, in the mankind sense of the word, it's possible to move mankind or men, women, by prayer alone. That's a quote from Hudson Taylor. Probably one of the greatest missionaries that we've ever known went to China in the 1800s. It's possible to move men by prayer alone. Now I'm going to give you that. Now I'm going to give you that, the follow-up to that one. It's possible to move God by prayer. There are numerous references to the way that prayer moves the hand of God and even in some cases changes his direction or his intended will. The reason that's the case, it is because prayer is given to us as the children of God, made in the image of God, to be in partnership with God. If prayer doesn't really do anything, why pray? If prayer doesn't move the hand of God, why pray? If all prayer is is kind of a divine Easter uh, egg hunt where we start running around looking for the eggs and we, we're, we're so excited we found them, but God hid them in a such a way that we could find them anyway, then that doesn't make prayer real exciting to me. Do you follow what I'm saying? Prayer can't just be therapeutic. I feel better when I pray. Prayer can't, has to have some ability to move the hand of God for it to really, really be prayer as God describes it. Let me take you to two scriptures, and, and we're going to, rather than kind of read through the book, which you can do on your own, I want to just take you to a couple of places. We go to the book of Luke chapter 11 with me. Luke chapter 11, and we're going to look at a story that may be familiar, at least some of these scriptures are going to be familiar, but I want to emphasize this, and I want to emphasize Luke chapter 18 as well. So Luke chapter 11, and let's look at verse 5. Verse 5, and he said to them, which of you shall have a friend, shall go to a friend at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. Now, the significance of this startup, as you're finding your place there, is it's midnight, and he's going to wake everybody up in the household. And all he wants is three loaves of bread. Now, from a cultural standpoint, if someone comes to your house, even if it's late at night, in that culture, in that day, you would always take care of them. It would be offensive for you not to feed them. We have similar kind of a, of a thing when somebody comes, hey, can I fix you something to eat? Have you eaten? But for us, it's not like a cultural no-no. It's just courteous. In that day, it would be an offense. So understand where he's coming from. This guy is, is trying to, to do the best he can for his friend. For a friend of mine has come to me, verse 6, and on a, on a, been on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. Now, you got the scene? The guy's knocking on the door, and he says, hey, I need some bread. And he says, I don't, and he's thinking to himself, I don't even care if you are my friend. It is midnight. Watch what he says. It is midnight. Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. He doesn't care about him being his friend. The kids are sleeping. Will you please leave? If you wake them up one more time, I'm going to kill you. 
That's the implication of this, right? I say to you, now look what it says, I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Why does he finally give him the bread? Persistence. The guy will not leave him alone. He just keeps knocking, knocking. I'm not going away till I get the bread. I'm not, not. Now, this is a, a teaching, a lesson on prayer. Some things... Some things God does not care if you get. That's what this is teaching. He's not, he's not got, oh, I've got it in my divine will. It's in, it's in, the, it's in the, the goodie bag of heaven. And, you know, it, all, all you have to do is ask, and I'm going to give it to you. No, no, no. He doesn't care about some things you're asking him for. He's fine with them. What he cares about is how he transforms your character and your faith into heavenly, persistent faith. That's what he cares about. And so what this lesson is teaching is, God says, if you will persist, I will give. If you do not persist, I will withhold. The great fault of the children of God is they do not continue in prayer. When once they are convinced that a thing is right, they should go on praying for it until the answer comes. Now that's a quote from the the missionary orphanage guy from Bristol, England, whose name's escaping me right now, but somebody's going to help me. Thanks so much for helping me out on that one. <laughs> All right. George Mueller. George Mueller, thank you so much, everyone, for helping me out. All right. George Mueller. So here's what he said. Once I am convinced a thing is right, I go on praying for it until the answer comes. Thousands of times my answers have come. George Mueller had risen to a place of persistence and faith in his life that he would pray and he would never tell anybody about what he was praying about and the answers were always coming. He gave Hudson Taylor, he funded Hudson Taylor's mission work to China to the degree if we put in today's dollars, it would be about $30 million. And he never asked anybody for one penny. And Hudson Taylor was the one who said, remember I started with this, it's possible to move men by God alone. By prayer alone. Now think about it. You put all that together. Now, now look what it says. I just want to read a little bit more into, the, into Luke 11, then we're going to go to 18. So I say unto you, okay, on the basis of that story, I say unto you, ask and it will be given. Now the, the verb here, the way the, the construction of the Greek is, you keep on asking. Well, I ask. I, I asked him last week and nothing came through. No, you keep on asking. Just like you keep on you know, asking for bread, right? Ask, and it will be given unto you. Seek, and the, again, keep on seeking, and you will find. Knock, keep on knocking, and it will be open to you. It doesn't say it might be. It says it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. In other words, everyone who keeps on asking. There seems to be three levels of request here. In other words, there are some things that are easily obtained in the kingdom, and there are some things that are not. It's like that reference in Matthew 17, 21, where it says some things happen only by prayer and fasting. 
In other words, prayer is not enough. You've got to, you've got to supplement it with fasting because what's happening in the spiritual kingdom is it's out of balance. Prayer brings it into balance. It opens up heaven. It's like an obstruction is happening in the divine flow of what God wants to do in your life through prayer and fasting. And sometimes prayer with greater prayer with greater prayer, what it does is it realigns the spiritual uh, gate of heaven, if you will, the portal of heaven, so that God can flow as God intends to flow. And what, what happens many times is we pray and we go, I don't know, I prayed and nothing happened. You, well, did you continue to pray? You know, I love the story where someone says, I prayed for 50 years, and the answer finally came. And we think because we prayed for 50 minutes, the answer ought to come. Now, maybe it wouldn't have taken 50 years had there been greater intensity. Maybe it was a 25-year prayer. Maybe it was a five-year prayer. Maybe it was a five-month prayer. God wants us to learn this lesson about prayer. If there's one thing I want you to learn from this lesson on prayer, because you can do the work, and you can train somebody and teach somebody how to pray and find the will of God, but if you don't understand this principle of prayer, you're not going to move heaven and earth. You're going to look at mountains and say move, and they're going to laugh at you. We were made for more than that. And so it says here, for everyone who asks, receive. Everyone who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. That's pretty definitive. That's pretty positive, isn't it? Let's go to Luke chapter 18. I love this one. This is a great one. And this is going to be in verse 1. So Luke 18, verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. So what's this parable about? Men ought to what? Pray and what? You ever lose heart when you're praying? We all do. Gosh, God, are you going to answer this prayer or not? And you slip into the emotional world of ups and downs, right? I don't know if he's going to. And then you start, you you do the self-talk. I don't know if God's coming through on this one. And you try to whisper so God can't hear you. God, you know, I don't know if God's coming through. Mumble. God can't understand. Mumble. And what you do is you lose heart. He says, I'm going to teach you something here. I'm going to tell you a parable so that, number one, you ought to pray. It ought to be a part of your life. And when you pray, you should not lose heart. So I'm going to give you a parable of an impossible situation with an unrighteous judge. And I'm going to show you how an unrighteous judge can be moved to do what's right because of persistence. Now watch this. There was a certain man, verse 2, in a, in a certain city, a judge, who did not fear God or regard man. Okay, so now we're not trying to move the local Christian politician to do something good. We're trying to move an unrighteous judge who did not fear God or man. Now, there was a widow in the city, again, significant, right? Probably missed by society. Widows were in that day, okay? Women were largely overlooked in that day, especially widows. I mean, what did she have to, to, she couldn't bribe the politician. You know, she couldn't threaten the politician. So what he does is he takes the most impossible situation of who you have to move, and he takes the most unlikely candidate to move that person and says, now let me teach you something about prayer. And here's what he says. 
There's a widow in the city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for my uh, for me for my adversary, for my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God or regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest her continually coming she wears me out. Why did the judge do what the widow asked? Persistence. I'm tired of the widow knocking and asking. I'm tired of her keep. She's going to wear me out. I would rather do something good that I don't want to do than have her continually knock at my door. Now, remember, what's this parable about? Men ought to what? Pray and what? Not lose heart. So here's what God is saying. God is saying if an unrighteous judge who doesn't fear God and doesn't fear man can be moved by a widow who doesn't have the ability to bribe, pressure, or threaten, then what do you think I will do? When you come to me in prayer. But I want you to learn the lesson of the widow. And the lesson is that you must persist in what you're praying for, believing that you have received it. Do not give up. Do not give up. I mean, how many of you would be honest enough to say there have been times in your life, and I'll be the first one to admit it, there have been times in my life when I have prayed for something and I quit praying because I just didn't think the answer was going to come. Would you, anybody have that testimony? I've had that, okay? I don't know about the rest of you. I guess you just like a massive spiritual giants among us, right? Um, but you see, why did you quit? Because you lost heart. Because you let emotion slip in there. Because you probably soothed yourself and gave yourself an out and said, well, it must not be the will of God. God changes his will on occasion. God, on occasion, allows you to shape the direction he's going to go. Now, I want to take another scripture, crazy scripture. Go to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. This one baffles me, and I have studied it for years. Um, someone brought it up to me again, and I'd forgot about it. I think it was Doug brought it up to me, and I'd forgot. And I, I went, we went back, and I looked at it, and I showed him a verse in here um, that just it it just baffles me. Okay, but I want you to I want to show you something about how God works. Now, this is a story about Cyrus, the king of Persia. Remember that guy? Okay, unrighteous king. But God used him to get Israel back into the land. So, verse 1, God says, The Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Now stop and think about what God just said. I'm going to take an unrighteous judge, I mean an unrighteous king, Cyrus, the king of Persia, and I'm going to call him, first of all, my anointed. He doesn't believe in the God of Israel. I'm going to call him my anointed. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold his hand. I'm going to accomplish my will through this unrighteous king is what I'm going to do. 
Now, sometimes we think, well, God doesn't listen to me because who am I really in prayer anyway? You're far more than an unrighteous king from Persia. That's what you are. You're a child of the living God. You're someone who has been given a a priesthood before the Father to come boldly before the throne, Hebrews says, and ask what you will. That's who you are. Now, if you drop down a little bit on this, he says uh, um, in verse 11, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my son. So what's he doing? It sounds a little bit like Jesus. Remember when Jesus said, up until now you've asked nothing in my name? Ask that you might be, that your joy might be made full. Remember that? Okay. He says, disciples, disciples, listen to me. Why aren't you asking? Why aren't you asking? Because you're so self-sufficient, you think you can figure it out and handle it. God beats this drum about asking from from Genesis all the way to Revelation. He's beating this drum. Would you please ask? Would you please ask for the impossible? I love it when you take big risks. I love it when you ask impossible things. I can't stand it when you don't. I can't stand it when you don't because you think you're God. You're falling back into the old thing that happened when Satan tempted Eve and said, don't you know in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God? You're just falling back into old Godhood stuff. You think you're in control. I like it when you're dependent. In fact, sometimes I will bring situations into your life like difficulty and crisis just to force you to trust me. That's good news, isn't it? You think all the difficulties and circumstances are just happened or because you or somebody else was dumb? Did you ever think that God arranges circumstances to make you dependent upon him? That's what he did with Job. See, Job didn't have it all together. Everybody thinks, well, Job was a good guy and, and just wanted to prove something. No, Job didn't have a clue about God. Let's just be honest about it. That's revealed in chapter 42 when Job says this, I heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. God took this guy, Job, who everybody thought was the best and said, let me pull him through the ringer and I'm going to show you what what he's made of. I know deep down what he's made of, but I want him to come to an understanding of who I am and what I can do. It was God who brought Job's name up, right? Right? circumstances God will arrange in your life to make you a dependent person on God and to grow your faith. Now, my prayer is always this, God, I don't want to be a slow learner. Teach me everything. I don't want to go through difficulty, right? But unfortunately, can't we all agree that there's just some lessons you don't seem to learn that way? You know, we're just a little bit thick of skull at times. All right, now, here's what I want to show you. This is crazy, what it's getting ready to say. Verse 11, ask me of things to come concerning my sons, concerning the work of my hands. Now look at the next phrase. You command me. I mean, it almost sounds like I shouldn't even be reading it. It says, Cyrus, I want you to command me what you want. As far as I know, it's the only time in Scripture where God does that. They said of, uh, of D.L. Moody, the, the preacher from Chicago many years ago who was 
greatly used of God that uh, when Moody prayed that he was so bold, he seemed as though he were insulting God. I can recall many times when I've made statements um, of what God was going to do, and then I would follow it up just to remind God of what his job is. God, I, you told me that I'm supposed to believe you. Now, God, now it's up to you. It's your job. You're on the hot seat. You put me on the hot seat to believe. I'm putting you on the hot seat to perform. It's kind of what he does with healing, isn't it? He didn't say pray for the sick. He said heal the sick. It's pretty gutsy. You see, what I want us to get out of this lesson on prayer and the will of God is that you are created in the image of God, and God wants to do far beyond what you could ever imagine through your faith and through your prayers. But he's waiting for bold people who don't excuse every prayer with, well, I guess it must not be the will of God. Who try to just kind of slip out of it and say, well, I prayed about it and nothing happened. I mean, God wants to raise up some courageous, bold men and women of faith who intimidate hell. Intimidate hell. Leonard Ravenhill said on one occasion, he said, I thank God my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But what I want more than that is my name written in 10-foot high letters in hell that says Leonard Ravenhill is alive. Do you kick dust in the devil's face or does he kick it in yours? Bold, courageous people who uncompromisingly believe God for the impossible, who move mountains, who change the course of human history, who tame the mouth of lions and refuse to burn. That's what God is trying to raise up. That's what God has called us to. And I believe in this end-time scenario we find ourselves in. And if you don't think we're in some of the last days, I don't know when the Lord's coming back. I don't know when things really, really get bad. But can it get any more indicative of we're the last days than we're in right now? I mean, just think about what's going worldwide. We may not feel it in Orange County, but think about what you read about while you sit in your comfort in Orange County around the world. Think about this spread of these demonically empowered people who are following under this Islamic state called ISIS. They're demonically empowered. They're no different than Nazis in, in World War II, except they're worse. Because nobody is trying to stop them. We are living in the last days. God wants to raise up some people who have power with God. And so if there's a lesson to be learned in this lesson on prayer, it is we should pray, but we should pray to move the heart and the hand of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Look at time here. You don't get a break as quick because you goofed off and didn't start at wrong time. Okay. I want to take you to the next lesson, if we could. Okay? The local church. I, I have heard this my whole life. It is that I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. That's true. I think that's 100% true. I agree with every person that ever tells me. My question is, are you a Christian if you don't go to church? Let's, let's take the analogy of the body. 
right? The Bible calls the church the body of Christ, and every one of us has a different function, right? You know, we're arms, legs, right? We just got different parts, and we kind of contribute in serving and giving and whatever else we do. Let's just imagine you're laying in bed one morning, and uh, you decide to get up, and your leg says, I'm not going anywhere. You say, fine, stay here. I'm going on without you. How well do you do without the leg? Well, you know, you might hobble around a little bit and might get okay, or your arm says, I'm hanging in. You know, I'm tired. I Up late last night, just staying here. See, that is, that is uh, an analogy that helps us to understand the mindset that says, they don't need me there or I don't have to go. The book of Hebrews tells us that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as we see, as is the habit of some, but all the more as we see the day drawing near. In other words, faithfulness and commitment should go up as we move closer to the end of the age. It should not decline. If they were faithful in the first century, we should be doubly faithful in this century. We should not look for a reason not to go. We should find a reason to be in the body because you say, well, I can get it on live stream. Yeah, you can. You can get a message and get worship, but that's not the body of Christ assembled, ministering to one another, encouraging one another. You see, you never know when you're going to walk down a hall, you're going to see somebody, and you're going to get to put your hand on their shoulder and pray for them. Right? That's ministering to the body. You say, well, I don't really, I'm, I'm fine without it. Well, maybe somebody's not fine without you. Maybe you're necessary and don't know how necessary you really are. That you're an important, vital part of it. And then the other part of that is the part you play. Every one of us has a different kind of gift mix. Everybody in here has at least one spiritual gift. Okay? That's what Scripture teaches about spiritual gifts. You have one spiritual gift. You may not know what it is. You might have the gift of serving, and you hate it. Right? I just hate it. Why do I have this? Why do I have this passion to serve? Dang it, God, I want a new gift. Right? Like a friend of mine, he told this story one time. He said, you know, you know, you might you might wanna, you know, you might wanna be an eye. You know, you might want to be the one who sees and knows what's going on all the time in the church. And and but you're a big toe. You're just a big toe. And and you just, you know, you say, I'm God, I'm not content being a big toe. I want to be an eye. And so you go, you even go to school. You go to school to learn how to be the best eye you can. And but you're still a big toe. And God finally says, okay, you can go ahead, you go to school, you can be an aisle you want, but all you're going to see is the end of a sock. <laughs> God arranges gifts within the body as he pleases. When I, when I first felt like, when I was pushed to preach for the first time, I didn't want to do it. I was going to be a missionary, and my roommate said, you know, hey, I've got you arranged to preach with my, in my dad's church. And I said, well, I don't preach, I'm going to be a missionary. He said, what do you think missionaries do? And I said, I don't know, sit in grass huts. I don't know what they do. I was, I'd only been saved like six months. What do I know what they do? He says, no, you're preaching. You're preaching two sermons, morning and night, two different ones. I dodged speech classes all through school because I did not want to get up in front of people and talk. I know you find that hard to believe today because it's hard to shut me up, but it's true. That was not the way I saw myself. There's some things you don't see yourself in a certain way, but God's gifted you in that way. 
And sometimes what you have to do is cultivate the gift within you. You have to stir up the gift within you. As, as Paul told Timothy, you have to stir it up and, and get the embers burning hot. You have to try some things to find out. And, and all of a sudden, you begin to move in a direction in your, in your giftedness, and you begin to feel this passion. You go, wow, if I could do this all day long, you know, this would be great because this is what I feel like I was meant to do. I was just wired for this very thing. And it begins to kind of confirm some things about your giftedness in the kingdom of God. But I, I, I sat there on that platform getting ready to speak, having prepared two sermons that I was convinced were not going to work, you know. And I remember I stood up. I got just right here. I didn't even say a word. And it was like God said, this is it. This is what you're going to do. And I spoke, and I still have both sermons on a cassette tape, all right, that um, I know some of you want to listen to. Listening, you can't own, but listening is $50 per listen. <laughs> I haven't listened to them in years. I don't know how bad they really are. But, but it was a confirmation of giftedness. See, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Some of you don't know what your giftedness is because you just haven't tried. Some of you are functioning within your spiritual gift, and you don't know what it is. It's okay. You don't have to say, I know what it is, but you say, but I love doing this. This is it. This is where I'm wired. Okay. So giftedness within the church. The church is literally the called out ones. It's the word in the Greek, the ekklesia. It means called out of darkness and into light. The French word for church means the crowing of a rooster. The idea of getting everybody's attention. We are called out to announce something to the world. They announce the world to the world. There's good news, right? Jesus Christ died, buried, and rose from the dead. Jesus Christ came to, to, to establish the church, the body of Christ. Amen? Now, just take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Joel. We're going to get into Joel uh, one way or the other tonight. Joel chapter 2, and I want to show you something here. In Joel chapter 2, it's, uh, it's really about the, re, uh, the end uh, of the age. It's about the return of Christ. It's about um, wh- how God is going to culminate the age we're currently living in. But it's also teaching us some great things about the kingdom. Now, don't miss this. Are you ready? Got it? Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. It's on page 801. Does that help? Helps some of you. Maybe three of you, right? Okay. Joel chapter 2. And look what it says here. It says, uh, verse 10, I'm just going to hit some spot verses and move through it. The earth quakes before the heavens tremble. The sun, the moon grow dark. The stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives a voice before his army. His camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and terrible, and who can endure it? So we're talking about the end of the age, right? Now look what happens. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a secret assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes. Here it comes. Let the bridegroom come out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Who's the bridegroom? It's Jesus. Who's the bride? The church. He says it's time to go back. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. This is talking about the second coming when Jesus brings with him an army who have been taken and raptured with him. He says, all right, now it's time to get the bride and the bridegroom together. We're going back in garments on white. We're going to culminate this thing, and we're going to usher in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
So you are the bride. Now, let's go to that analogy again. What if the bride doesn't show up for the wedding? Not a good thing. We got a runner, right? Got a runner. Movie's been made about the bride who doesn't show up. I mean, it, and it, you know, it's usually those ones where they haven't shown up for three or four of them, and then finally they find true love. Well, guess what? We're going to show up, and it says we're going to be a spotless bride without blemish, pure, made holy by Jesus Christ. That God is going to present us pure before him. That's you. That's me. That's who God's going to do that with. Isn't that great? I mean, think about that. Do you think God is concerned that we get ready for that day? Now, I really don't know what brides do to get ready. I don't know why it takes so long. I mean, I, I've done a lot of weddings. You know, the guys can show up like an hour before. They're great. The brides, they show up like two days in advance. They're doing nails, hair. You know, I, I, it just baffles me what, what must go on in that room, you know, to get ready. I don't know whether it just takes girls longer to get ready than guys. There's more equipment. I don't know what's going on in there. What's happening in that world, right? But the, bride, but the, bride, the groom's ready. The analogy's the same. Jesus is ready. The groom is ready. It takes the bride longer, the body of Christ. We got to get ready for the return. Amen? Got to get ready. How do we get ready? Well, we refine our, our living. We refine our faith. We, we make preparations. We lift our head up and we look for the redemption of Christ. And at the same time, we, we overhear and we're, we're ministering, we're working, we're praying, we're doing the work of the kingdom because guess what? It's going to be a glorious day. It's a glorious day that's coming. So the church, as we think about the church, the bride of Christ, um, we're going to... Uh, uh, Take a, take a look to uh, number 45, page 45. Just want to highlight, remember the gray um, arrow there. Use your gifts to serve one another with an eye toward building the church numerically and in maturity. Okay? So we're going to do that. How are we going to relate to other believers? You know, when we, you know, there's always going to be friction among people. Amen? Right? There's going to be some people you like better than other people. The problem is in the kingdom of God, you've got to learn how to love everybody. You know Why? Because you don't get to move out of the community of eternity. Might as well learn now. I'm going to figure out how to get along with you because you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. You're the body of Christ. So part of what the church does is it, it helps to understand this concept of, uh, of community. Um, okay. I've covered two lessons, and it's now time for a break. Everybody good with that? All right, let's drink coffee. Wake up and get ready, and we're going to, uh, we're going to cover two more lessons before the night's over, and we'll be caught up. Amen? All right, guys, take a break.